Welcome to the Queer Movie Podcast, celebrating the best and worst in LGBTQ plus cinema, one glorious genre at a time. I'm Rowan Ellis. Oh, and hi there, it's me, Jazza John. Each episode, we discuss a movie from a different genre of cinema. That we do. And this episode genre is queer erotic, erotic thriller. thriller some incredible voice acting from us there yeah wonderful please somebody give us a job i wonder if we're going to get um restricted monetization or whatever the spotify equivalent is of that for having erotic in the title i guess we'll see so we're going to be talking about today the really who knew that this was going to be the christmas movie of the year the truly everybody has been talking about it movie saltburn directed and written by Emerald Fennel, which is how I'm going to pronounce her name. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's correct, but I'll take it. Yeah, okay. But before we slurp down some human semen bath soup... That, for anyone who hasn't watched the movie, <laughs> is a reference from the movie, not just a thing that Jazza likes to do in their spare time. Sounds fun. Rowan, what's the gayest thing that you've done since the last episode? An excellent question. I actually haven't been doing anything much, gay or otherwise, because as you can probably tell from my voice, I got laryngitis. I, I guess, chatted too much, as is my... MO and my throat went no that's enough now so for about five days I couldn't talk at all and I'm I'm just about that was at at New Year's Eve so it's like a week out and this is how I sound so I think the husky dulcet sounds of my voice is very suitable for this movie but it does mean that I've been doing nothing except be sick in bed not talking I do think that you have to ramp up the posh a little bit and then you really will sound like a character from this mm. movie because they're all it's the early 2000s everyone is a heavy smoker the indoor smoking ban hasn't happened yet mm-hmm. and so everybody was naturally huskier and sexier it's a period piece okay here's what i should have said i've actually had laryngitis for <laughs> approximately a week so i've been doing absolutely nothing <laughs> For everyone's benefit, I'm doing this impression while imagining that I've got a cigarette in my hands and Jazza can see me. I'm just like, you know, waving it around like I'm. Yeah, and you've clearly never smoked skins. a day in your life. Listen, <laughs> listen, you. And straight edge. <laughs> yes, yes, sorry. So, Jazza, I imagine it's now my time to ask what is the gayest thing that you've done since the last time you we were on air? Oh, yes, what, 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 what? Yes, wonderful. Last time we were on air. I could tell you about the day I had yesterday, but you know what? I'm going to steer away from cliche. I had my mum and my dad come and visit me in New York where I live this Mm, holiday season. Well, specifically, one of the things that I took them to see was the Gay Men's Chorus, where my parents were sat in the centre front row with me, and they had a lovely time watching lots of innuendo, as is the Gay Men's Chorus way, and my mum even got pulled up on stage by a drag queen to have a little dance and I've never seen the woman more horrified but she did have a lovely time so exposing my parents to the homosexual Mm. agenda is the gayest thing that I've done so here's something interesting about that Jazza is that you have told me that story but I can't remember whether it was on the previous episode of this very (laughs) podcast or a time when we just talked as friends so I would say keep it in there and if it was something that we mentioned last episode (laughs) everyone can just have a second go at that story can I just tell you That'll be really embarrassing because when you were away, I also gave the same anecdote two episodes in a row. I gave the anecdote of me being at a gala with Dominique Jackson and I did it twice, two episodes on the trot. So if I've done the same thing, what a perfect way. To start the year. Welcome to 2024. Start as we mean to go on, lads. Oh my God. I need to write these down. It's so 
horrible to hear yourselves tell the same story again as well. It's just really quite jarring. Oh, it's pretty tedious being the person have to listen to it, to be honest, Jazza. No, it's it's fine. <laughs> I'm sorry, everybody. Let's just do the date. I went on a date yesterday. That's the gayest thing that I did. <laughs> Love that. I guess, shall we uh, move swiftly on to the movie? Yes, okay. We will be giving, as always, a little bit of a background of the film. Specifically, Roman's going to help me with some context on the writer and director Emerald Fennel and the work that she has done Indeed. in the past and why I should care. Then, as always, we're going to be splitting the film into three acts, as is a traditional Western narrative structure for your convenient consumption. Of course, including the party in its aftermath which always seems to appear in every single movie that we watch and in this one is it's really there to a, a wild and exciting degree i feel like they reverse engineered it i feel like they were like oh we need a yeah party they listen to aftermath. our podcast let's create a whole movie yeah 100 yeah, makes sense yeah emerald's a big fan and then at the end we will be giving our patented rainbow flag scoring system score for this movie as well we really need to get on that patent and stop just saying that we have it mm-hmm. we are going to be spoiling all of this movie but if you want to understand any of the memes that came out of the first two weeks of this year then you really need to watch it and get up on this gig also fantastic soundtrack so you should watch it just even if it's just for the sophie ellis bexter stuff so this episode is for people who have seen the movie or do not care about the movie being spoiled and speaking of the music without further ado let's dance around a mansion to sophie ellis bexter with our willies flopping about and review saltburn the things that Jazza makes me say on this podcast, incredible. I love, I actually moved that one so that, so that you I had to say it. it. Yeah, I spotted that. Yeah, I wanted to hear you say Willie's flopping about. Mm-hmm. Give me some context, hit it to me. Okay, so. Hit it to me. This movie I think has been really interesting because it has, it kind of came out of, didn't really come out of completely nowhere, but I think that the response to it has been quite intense for a number of reasons. One, I think it's one of the first movies since we've come out of the strike, which has had a concerted kind of marketing effort behind it, especially leading on the mm-hmm. lead actors and their sort of chemistry and their personability and the fact that they are kind of like it boy actors of the moment in sort of different areas of the industry. Mm -hmm. I think also the fact that this was a follow-up to Promising Young Woman, which also was quite a, I would say, sort of split opinions from critics and audiences. And Saltburn has kind of done the same. But I have a very specific take on this. So I think that the marketing of both of these movies has a lot to answer for. No, it has it, it has a lot to do with the way in which it's been received. <laughs> I think it has a lot to add to Because the way that this movie was marketed, for example, seemed to be leaning into the idea that this was an eat the rich type of movie. And similarly, mm-hmm. Promising Young Woman was uh, sort of talked about and like the trailer was cut in a way that kind of promised you a sort of rape revenge style exploitation updated sort of movie and those two things Mm -hmm. were not accurate to the movies that actually came out and I think that one the filmmakers don't have any real choice in how a a trailer's cut or how it's marketed so it wasn't like it's not something you can really put on the filmmakers but also even if it had been their decision I think that a key part of these movies is subverting expectations of audiences and playing with genre and so actually leaning into the expected genre and then doing something different with it makes complete sense and I think can make the watch more interesting for the viewer as long as they don't go into it completely married to the idea that they're going to get one genre and then becoming very disappointed when Mm -hmm. they don't get it because that's what I seem to see in a lot of the reviews that are sort of not as in favor of these two movies is that they talk about them as if they're judging them on the criteria of how well they succeeded in being a rape revenge or an eat the rich Mm -hmm. movie which they were not trying to do in the first place Mm -hmm. to me this movie is much more of a sort of 
unhinged one summer at the English country mansion. I think that the director refers to this as a vampire movie. Like it's about Mm -hmm. obsession and it's kind of playing with the gothic and any sort of commentary around class is not as simple as just Mm a cathartic eat the rich kind of moment, Mm -hmm. which I think is, is interesting. He does actually eat the rich though. He does. He eats something. He eats something and then he eats a little bit of something Mm -mm. else and then uh, all of that. Nom, nom, nom. Gobble, gobble. I was really curious or I was was really intrigued by the amount of people who were so kind of like surprised by the... Like, this is an unhinged movie. Like, in the second and third act, it really goes off the rails. Like, it all kind of all hell breaks loose but once it starts doing that i was kind of like oh okay it's this kind of film now and was kind of along for the ride and it almost felt a little bit you know how i don't know anything that's going to happen mm-hmm. in the movie i knew exactly what was going to happen in this movie as soon as he was invited to the manor and i think this is quite a derivative film there's a lot of scenes and story beats and the party and its aftermath all feel kind of like very referential to movies within and around this genre but also to be fair i never watched any of the trailers and so i didn't go in with a particular expectation i also think it's interesting that people may have come in with like the eat the rich eye or expectation on this because this definitely feels like a very sympathetic movie to rich people. Mm-hmm. I think that they're, if anything, the the good guys in this. And also I do want to mention that our mate Emerald, who did this movie, she is an Oxford girl yeah. as well. I, okay, I would disagree with you that this movie is in any way sympathetic to these rich people. They are made out to be the stupidest, most awful people I don't in this know. movie. I think it other is. than the guy who's literally killing them. They are like awful to everyone around them especially the parents there's also this real sense of like the utter Mm -hmm. ease with which these people move through the world that they do not have an appreciation for there's like a bunch of stuff I think that Felix is reasonably sympathetic and that is is part of it but I don't think that it's a movie that paints Mm -hmm. the rich as a concept or like the upper classes as sympathetic in any way I think it's like almost an accident that Felix is as nice as he is because it's like everyone else who's spiling around this is like parasitic or just completely without empathy in a lot of ways I don't think many people come out of this movie looking good I think Felix comes out of it looking like a young dick but like an actually nice person who was taken advantage of and I feel the same way about Farley as Mm. well as kind of like someone who is an outsider within this very high echelon part of society who his side of the family has been kind of like alienated and and cut off from the rest of them I came away with quite a lot of sympathy for him as well everybody else is awful but i think if there's anyone that i have sympathy for it's those two Uh, but then also here oliver's parents obviously but we don't get to know them very well because they're just commoners i think folly's an understandable bitch Mm -hmm. but he's still a bitch (laughs) like i can understand why he's that way but he's still awful (laughs) and i think as well like the sister kind of a similar energy of like if you are someone who has had either everything handed to you or have an expectation that you deserve to have things handed to you. There is something about that which affects how you move through the world mm-hmm. and not necessarily in positive ways. I do think that what's really interesting about this, you talk about the, the fact it, it's quite derivative, 100%. Mm-hmm. Like the illusions and the references in this are so many. But I also think it's interesting because it takes from a bunch of different types of narrative mm-hmm. where 
this could have gone one of many ways. I think as you were watching the movie, the start of it, we 100% could have been having an Eat the Rich movie in which we see Oliver being completely justified in what he's doing. And the big reveal is something to do with the parents being the people who were employing his parents and who Mm -hmm. made them redundant and then sent them down this spiraling path. And that's the big reveal of like, he's justified in getting this revenge. Like there's lots of ways this could have gone. Mm. And I thought that we'll get into it when we talk about the movie itself, but about halfway through, there is a huge reveal about Oliver, which completely changes the class dynamics of this movie Mm -hmm. in a really interesting way. Well, shall we get on with it then let's dig in amazing act one what have you named act one Jazza? so it is this portion of the movie where i feel like i'm going to be particularly useful because my act one is called rowan did you know i went to oxford mm, mm, interesting interesting okay okay so you know what's really scary about this is the accuracy of all of like the little bits did you kill a whole family Jazza? is this was this a yeah autobiography <laughs> or a biography of your that's life that's exactly what all of the middle class people at oxford do we're all going around trying to steal people's mansions Makes sense. but uh, we open up with kind of like well oliver is doing kind of like a monologue to somebody we find out later and he's like i did love him but i wasn't in love with him amazing beautiful cliche for us to open with and then we open into Mm -hmm. sure jan (laughs) and then we open into like an orientation day at oxford this is oxford university can i just say really quickly my favorite bit of that prologue is when he does the like yeah i loved him i loved him but i wasn't in love with him it's a it's over a montage of the him he's talking about is Felix. Mm-hmm. It's over a montage of Felix, which plays out like one of those dead wife montages <laughs> from like an action movie where like a man, like his wife dies and he has to avenge her. And it's her in the sun dappled mm-hmm. light of their bedroom, putting her hand up to the camera like, Haha, no, don't film it. I have any makeup on. It's that energy. And even just escalating the whole like, mm, sure, you weren't in love with him or whatever, bitch. Also very fun watching this a second time because this man saying the line, that's why he liked me so much. I protected him. I was honest with him. <laughs> babe, <laughs> when, where and how? I love this story. I love this narrative for you, babe. Yeah, you re- the narrative very much is narrativing, sir. But yeah, then we get to this 2006. So this is a period it piece. It is a period piece. And what a period piece. I adored how well the set dressing, the costuming, all of this is. And I find it so hilarious also that this fashion period has now come back around. So a lot of like the tribal bracelets like a lot of the the piercings smoking is cool again you know all of the things mm-hmm. have come back around and it's so cool to see this listen to all of the music but we open up following oliver arriving in oxford he wanders around the radcliffe camera and he actually he sorry just name dropping like bits of oxford continue to do this i am gonna be doing this the whole time so i know what college he's canonically going to like they've obviously made up a college but he's going to brazenose college and brazenose college is where david cameron went to interesting and david cameron i don't think would have been at college at the time of this but it's well known for being kind of all of the poshos and terrible people so oliver is dressed in like all of the college gift shop paraphernalia so he has like a college tie he's wearing like a suit he's got you remember those glasses that had no frames around them they always looked terrible but they were very common in the like mid 2000s i definitely had a pair he wanders in to kind of like orientate himself put his bags down we see farley walks past and says nice jacket and everybody laughs at him we know that oliver is big nerd no one regina likes george energy from farley 100 
100%. We see him go to um, a formal for the first time. So he's wearing subfusk. Sorry, just dropping some more terms. So he's wearing like oh a little half cloak that you have to wear to formal dinners and everybody is sat there and he finds a seat and he sits there in front of a guy who's a math genius who starts screaming at him to, to give him a sum to do and he's like i don't even really like maths i'm just really good at it go give me a sum give me a fucking sum and he gives him a sum and then he says it's like 3,284 or something like that. Yeah, it's very Matilda coded. I think one of the things that's so interesting about this is you talk about the sense of like him wearing this cute little robe. No one fucking else is. The people who are wearing it are the people who are like new money or that, middle yeah. class or low working class. They want to make a good impression. And I think it really just hammers home the idea of like this effortlessness of being old money mm-hmm. in that money can solve your problems and also you do not have to worry about what impression you make because you know that you can get away with literally anything. Mm-hmm. And so there is this really interesting element of everything he's doing being a performance mm-hmm. in this setting. Like he just doesn't really belong there. And that is so interesting to me. And nowhere is both of those things more pronounced than in the next section where we see him at his first tutorial mm-hmm. where he is partnered up with Farley and he talks about the fact he's read the entire reading list again first time you watch that within this context of oh he's like a try hard he's really trying his best but he's not quite doing it it's like oh you've done too much the tutor's like well I haven't even read half the stuff the bible's mm-hmm. on that list why would you why would you read that when you watch it a second time you're like oh this motherfucker's lying like mm-hmm. <laughs> fully fully like this isn't a point about him overcompensating and all of the extra work he has to do as someone from a working class background this is him fully just lying to get through and that is yeah, it was just really interesting doing the before and after reads where you're making assumptions as you go through and correcting the assumptions and then yeah. going back in and being like, oh, this is what the actual reading of this was. This, these Of all the options, this is what was actually happening. And then Farley comes in late and it's a bad thing for about two seconds until the tutor realizes who Farley's mother is and the fact that they went to university together and there is a clear power dynamic shift in that tutorial where Farley takes charge mm-hmm. because the professor was essentially in the Michael nerdy math student kind of role where he was very uncool and he basically says to Folly, don't even mention me to your mother because it was just the idea of her remembering he existed was so humiliating. Mm-hmm. And that is so exactly it that Farley can just get away with it so mm-hmm. easily because of nothing to do with him as a person, his talent, his interest in the subject, just because of who his mother happens to be. And there's like a common conception here in like the culture of the tutorial. Like there is a reason that most places do not use this as like a study method. It's because it's so easy to bullshit. It is famous a space where nobody does any of the reading and you'll just you just go in there for like an hour or two hours and you just pretend to have like done the reading and to be able to like have this conversation and it's just going to school to learn how to bullshit your way through things I don't know what you're talking about Chelsea. I would never do that thing but if I did <sighs> what I would do is come up with an extremely good and salient two different points on the thing we were studying in the tutorial and then make sure to mm-hmm. to get them out there as early as possible so that I became the one who was in their mind, the one who actually did the reading. And then throughout the entire tutorial, they'll be like, Rowan, you said you've done it. You've actually, you know, you've brought some stuff up. Everyone else, let's join the discussion. And I'd already got my points out and wouldn't have had to have read Paradise Lost. Hypothetically. You're toxic. I am. I'm Farley in this scenario. (laughs) I I kind of am like a weird cross between the two. Also very fun that the poem that they're talking about in the tutorial is Robert Browning's My Last Duchess, which every single fucking person who's done GCSE English in England knows. My mom was getting 
an inspo because that that is about a man who killed his wife. That is about a man who fully got away with murder to the point where he brought people into his house and was like, hi, look at this murder that I did. So it's just like a murderer with the audacity. And I really feel like Oliver looked at that and went, what if I was a murderer with audacity? And that's what he did. Mm-hmm. That's the movie. Yeah, it was actually Oxford turned him into a murderer. He was a perfectly reasonable person before he arrived. 100%. So we see Oliver going through college life. He's an outsider. He's a weirdo. He's got a funny accent from somewhere. Who knows? And he has noticed Felix and his gang, of which Farley is also one of them, and is clearly kind of like, something's going on. Maybe he loves him, but isn't in love with him. He has a run-in with Felix solo where felix is down by the canal and his bike has a puncture so oh no he's gonna be late to his tutorial and then oliver offers up his bike so that felix can get to the tutorial in time and not get in trouble this opens up the possibility of them being the best of friends and oliver turns into a point of curiosity for Felix and his friends. Oliver abandons the weird maths guy and begins hanging out. Put some respect on Michael's name. Is that his name? That random character who just never turned up again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's served his purpose now. It's all done. Mm -hmm. Bye, Michael. And they start (laughs) hanging out at the pub, learning about each other's lives, learning about each other's families. There is a point where they're doing rounds at the pub and Oliver, we know from the end of the movie, you know, Oliver pretends to not have the money to be able to pay for a round of drinks. And so Felix goes up and helps him. So, oh, Oliver's, well, Felix has got a little pet now. That's fun. Someone who he can pay for. I think also this is another one of those moments in the film where if you watch it for the first time and you're essentially when you're watching a movie like this or like any movie you're you're picking up the clues and trying to figure out like if something's being shown to me and isn't explicitly being said like what is it trying to convey and so there's this idea of like okay Felix is a good guy like he's covering for Oliver and not making it awkward he's trying to bring him into his friendship group but also when Oliver abandons Michael without even saying oh I'm gonna go and hang out with these guys now he just Mm -hmm. straight up goes to get Michael and him drinks and then just leaves Michael Mm -hmm. catches his eye across the room and Michael understands okay cool I've been abandoned there is an element there where you're not sure because Michael has been been painted as such an annoying character whether this is going to be one of those mean girl scenarios of like oh i'm abandoning my real fr- it's it's not like an, i'm abandoning my real friends to hang out with these cool people can you imagine if this turned into mean girls i'd love that <laughs> incredible it's this whole thing was a musical the whole time they really kept it a secret in the, in the trailers but you have this skirting around these different potential tropes but none of them quite fit because michael is not a good friend that he's gonna learn he should have been friends with the whole time right like it's not one of those like oh i i wanted to be popular so much i got my ambition got the best of me and I need to learn to be myself like that's not what's happening but it's it's kind of that complicated stuff where like it, you I was like chewing over it as I was watching like hmm, I'm interested in which direction this is going to go also then at this point we get another montage the montages in this movie there's a few of them very gay obviously mm-hmm, classic mm-hmm. but the montage is just of the most aggressively mid to late 2000s university experience you can imagine <laughs> just like the neon college disco Mm -hmm. having fun with the friend's time incredible and during that montage we essentially have Oliver both getting the intel on what's going on with Farley like how he's related to Felix and Felix's childhood and then also tells Felix about his parents who essentially are neglectful addicts Mm -hmm. and kind of this gets like drawn out of him Felix is like you can tell me you can tell me and he he kind of reluctantly says and Felix is just like you know what fuck him like I'll be there for you 
you know, parents who'd have them kind of thing. And also while this, you know, blossoming friendship is happening, we also have this weird, dark stalker side of Oliver continuing where he just loves to just watch Felix have sex with a girl through a window. Mm -hmm. And this all essentially, this beautiful montage of friendship culminates in a big argument that they have. Oliver gets drunk, Felix needs some space. And the next morning, Oliver gets a call while he's super hungover, he's just vomited everywhere, saying that his dad, one of said neglectful addicts, has died, immediately goes to Felix and essentially all is forgiven. There is a big emotional, what were we even fighting about? Mm-hmm. Oh, come on, mate, that's so You awful. shouldn't do your exams, blah, 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 all of that. Oh, kind of you stuff. should oh just, God, oh, you baby, imagine? baby, let me take care of your little baby. There's a direct dialogue from the movie. <laughs> it is very good. I re-watching this as well you see what is happening here with the manipulation of oliver of oh you start to notice that felix is getting bored we kind of hear this from his family members later down the line that he kind of does this he will kind of adopt somebody and then he'll get bored of them and throw them aside there was somebody else that he invited to the family manor the last year that there was another friend from high school who he also had a falling out with and we see felix start to kind of like get a bit bored of oliver as well in these montages and oliver faking his dad's death not faking not even faking his dad's death saying that his dad has died is a way of him being able to get back in with felix and get accepted again and brought into the fold again and be included i do also love when felix is talking about his family he's like oh yeah actually um quite a lot of brides had revisited just based on my family <laughs> It was so it was so into our house it was weird, <laughs> which is great. And then like as part of this big reunion moment that they have, Felix takes Oliver to the river and essentially says there's a there's like a tradition that we do in our family when someone dies we write their name on a stone and we throw it into the river and then he's like I've only had to do it with my dog so far <laughs> incredible so writes down you know dad on it gets Oliver to throw the stone in the most egregious form of like terrible campy foreshadowing is that the the stone doesn't land in the river I love the stone so gets much. sort of like on a little pile which is above the water and it's like oh what a callback when you at the end you're like not even dead he's just that stone never made it because the dad's still alive but essentially this is for me where act one ends which is felix inviting oliver to spend the summer at his family's estate saltburn mm-hmm. This is where we get into our kind of secondary setting, Saltburn itself. What a weird name for a place. Mm. Yes, this is where my act two begins as well. And I have called this act, Who do I have to kill to have a summer where I lounge around, do nothing and read Harry Potter? Oh, wait. It's this family. I have to kill this family. You know what? I'll take... That's an excellent title. Very concise. Very um, Fall Out Boy album (laughs) vibes, um, which is very appropriate for the time period. So basically the first thing that happens, Oliver arrives immediately out of his depth again, Mm -hmm. similar to him being at university in terms of class behavior. Very interesting class dynamics here where the butler Duncan is just unbelievably unimpressed by Oliver Mm -hmm. and everything he does is not right. And I think that's really interesting 
angle that we kind of often do see in period dramas that are set back in like the 1900s kind of energy and the 1800s of the servant who considers themselves to be superior or better than a guest who is even a higher class than them but lower than their employers Mm -hmm. so interesting as a dynamic within like british fiction the idea of like oh you don't but i know my place you don't know your place and therefore there is something that is wrong with you Mm -hmm. that there is something which is like has a lack of class within you even if you are in the higher echelons of society than a servant fascinating really interesting to see that play out in like a modern way but basically the idea of like you're a guest that doesn't know how to behave and then we get this incredible one take walk through the entire house where Felix comes down and is like oh don't mind the butler Oliver come let me give you the tour and we walk around this house and it's just him pointing out all of these like the library the blue room the pink room mm-hmm. here's my room here's your room mm-hmm. incredible sharing a bathroom bit of a foreshadowing there for the sharing human soup sharing a bathroom mm. and then we get to meet the family who are who are by the way they're watching Napoleon fucking dynamite like a load of Posh people. It was very, you know, in The Crown or like in royal dramas where you have like the 1970s or 80s royal family and they're in a palace and they're all huddled around like a small TV in the middle of the palace that just looks really out of place. That's what this is. There's like a TV in this grand manner and they're all there watching fucking Napoleon Dynamite laughing their heads off, having a lovely time. Yeah, so it's Felix's parents who are Sir James and Lady Elspeth. Mm -hmm. We have his sister, Venetia, Elspeth's friend, Pamela, and Farley is there as well. And Elspeth and Pamela are having this conversation about Oliver because clearly yeah. Felix <laughs> has told them everything and they're all gossiping about it. Elspeth loves a gossip, which we love to see. And they say things like, oh, they don't have rehab in Liverpool, do they? Oh, I imagine everyone just goes to ruin. Where is Liverpool, darling? Is it by the sea? Oh, I think it's in the north. Oh, of course it's in the north. Like these conversations. And then Felix is like, it's Prescott. It's not Liverpool. She's like, oh, Prescott, an awful slum. A hellish spot, I imagine. <laughs> like, in- <laughs> it's the amazing. dialogue in this is so amazing. I love it so, so much. It's just these people talking so confidently about shit they do not know anything about, Mm -hmm. which just continues through this movie. And there's also these little like character quirks, which are so funny. So like Elspeth, who was like a model and an it girl in her youth, hates ugliness. Like she almost has a weird phobia of things that aren't beautiful. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so when Oliver arrives and she's like, your eyes are so beautiful. Thank God. If you'd have been an uggo, then it would have been just the worst (laughs) summer of my life. It's so ridiculous. I do love the language that we have here as well of like feeling. Felix saying, well, I told you he wasn't a minger and the word minger being used was, uh, it transported me back to secondary Mm -hmm. school and being like, oh no, I wouldn't make out with her. She's a minger. Not because she's a girl. Yeah. I love how you discover things about yourself. (laughs) I love that for you. But yeah, it's very indicative of like the polite surface with the true meaning underneath. We essentially have a series of meals that we share with this family and their guests and it really tells us all we need to know. So first of all, there is a dinner at which Elspeth is very clearly trying to get rid of her friend Mm -hmm. and doing it in the most sort of like verbal dexterity mixed with utter blunt, not even subtext, Mm -hmm. where she's like, oh, oh, you found somewhere to stay maybe. How will I cope? You must be desperate to be rid of us. Oh, I quite understand. No, you must leave. Mm -hmm. Go away. Like it's very much that kind of not subtle manipulation that's happening where we know 
that Pamela knows that Elspeth doesn't want her here, mm-hmm. but no one is saying it out loud. Yeah, and she's got a cousin who has a bedsit or something. She's like, oh, it's, it's not even really a flat, it's just a bedsit, really. And Rosalind Pike goes, oh, well, I, I lived in a bedsit before. I really loved it. So easy to clean when you're just in one room. Like you said, the dexterity of it, it's again one of those things where everything is delivered so quickly and confidently and smoothly that it just kind of like washes over you. I really think that she has the best lines in this movie, 100%. So an interesting thing that I found out from a couple of interviews that I'd seen around this movie, talking to specifically the actor who plays Farley, was talking about the fact that he had such an amazing experience on the film working with Rosamund Pike in particular because she would start to get into character about five minutes before they started rolling. Mm-hmm. And he, the first time that he like encountered this, he just went to say something to her like, I don't know, about their marks or something like that. And she just goes, oh no, you're Farley, darling. And he's like, oh, and then he's like, oh yeah, sick, let's do this. And so they would like improvise with each other about like, oh, you remember last summer, darling? It was such an, oh, unbearably hot and it's looking to be even hotter now. And he's like replying as Farley being a little bitch. And like, I think that that was such, you can kind of see that embodied energy, which she does so well in in everything that she does. Amazing. But it was just, it's a character who is so over the top, but then also utterly believable in the most horrific way, which I very much appreciated. We then, after this awkward dinner, get the breakfast the next day in which we have the so cringeworthy ordering of a full English by Oliver. He yes. comes down late. Everyone has these breakfasts, in, these cooked breakfasts in front of them. And he says to the butler, like, oh, can I get a full English? There's this awkward pause. And then Elsbeth and the butler have to explain, oh, no, no, all the food is on the side, like buffet style. But you do have to order your eggs because they make them to order. <laughs> and then he orders them and the butler brings them and they're all like not cooked properly and not, not at all. He ordered in this like passive aggressive display, but he also can't say anything because then he's seen as ungrateful. He doesn't want to cause a fuss like just the the tiny little nuances of british and english especially politeness mm-hmm. nonsense is is chef's kiss yeah really fantastic stuff this is where we get the wank in the bath right mm, yeah so we we get like a, another montage first uh-huh. where they're just having a great time they're vibing in the sun for some reason they're naked in a field together oh yeah lovely everybody's and reading they're harry reading potter. the new harry potter book mm-hmm. they watch the ring just aggressively 2006 times mm-hmm. also we see a scene again which is one of those ones that has double meaning when you rewatch it of oliver faking knowledge about a designer oh, the in ceramics, the house like a, right? the ceramics in the house to the dad and you see him look at the book so you know he didn't already know this he's done his research but if you watch it the first time and you're still not sure like what Oliver's game is it's like oh he's feeling a bit awkward he's mm-hmm. trying to like ingratiate himself because he just wants his friend's dad to like him and to seem more knowledgeable and then afterwards you're like oh this is like fully manipulative tactics Machiavellian shit going on mm-hmm. but yes then we do have the bath scene Jazza would you like to take the bath scene and really give us a visual image image what uh, a psychological image what in the call me by your name is this movie trying to fucking do so we see oliver watching felix have a wank in the bath felix duly gets out of the bath and oliver is there brushing his teeth felix leaves as the bath is draining we see oliver descend onto the porcelain the unclean porcelain, I might add. There is lime scale around that. That's a dirty plug hole. This is objectively disgusting. And you can see the visceral white of semen flowing through the water as it's drained through the plug hole. And Oliver slurps it up like soup from a spoon. And I've never been so disgusted by a scene but also unable to turn away when we first watched this movie it is after this point 
that everything kind of begins to go a bit bananas. Like everything goes off the rails, everything goes wrong, people start dying. And I thought that this was a point of like, oh, this is when like hallucinations start. This is when we get into kind of like a magical other dimension where nothing is actually real. And this is kind of like the moment where we veer off into the thriller nature of the movie. But my God, it is the scene that everybody Actually, no, there are so many scenes that everybody talks about. There's this one, there's the, oh, I'm a vampire scene. There's the mm -hmm. dancing around to Sophie Ellis Bexer. There's the fucking grave scene. Okay, I will say we're going to get to it. And I, so I won't say about it now. There is a scene we haven't mentioned yet that I think is the worst of the entire bunch. And I will let you know when we get to it. Excellent. My comments from the bath scene, all I wrote down was lick up that bath water, baby, slurp it. <laughs> Not slurp. Not Which slurp. essentially is basically what you said. <laughs> no, 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 no. We, after this... It's exactly right. We get a real sense like this is such a turning point in terms of like, oh, something is definitely absolutely wrong with Oliver in some way. Like previous to this, it's been like, oh, OK, there's definitely something at this point. We see it then in terms of a physical embodiment and the next scene where he's talking to Elspeth as the verbal and like psychological embodiment where he essentially is like really controlling and manipulating this conversation. He finds out that they sent Pamela away and she talks about the fact that the reason why she did it was basically Pamela wasn't fun enough. Well, you wouldn't imagine to look at her. She looks absolutely fun. You think she'd be creative, but actually dull as anything. Dull as a ball. She looks so fun. She's ugh, dull as dishwater that you would slurp up from a bath. <laughs> but Oliver essentially starts sowing the seeds of paranoia. He starts saying, you know, like, oh, yes, it's an awful story about what happened to her. If it's even true... You know, I thought there were some mm -hmm. inconsistencies. And he's essentially doing this thing of not just sowing the seeds of paranoia, but leaning into not even the guilt that I think she feels, but the guilt that she thinks she should feel. Mm -hmm. Like the idea of her wanting absolution for the fact that she has thrown this woman out, like onto the street, into this street bed set, <laughs> that he's basically like absolving her of any wrongdoing mm -hmm. by saying like, she was awful the whole time. She was lying to you. And she's like, you're right, Oliver. You know what? Now I think about it. She was. Oh, thank goodness you're here. You always see things completely clearly and tells her she's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Says it must be really hard for Venetia to be your daughter because you're such a beautiful woman. Because mm, you're so hot. Mm -hmm. And also get some intel from Elspeth. So Elspeth talks about the fact that Venetia has like an eating disorder. Fingers for pudding, darling. Fingers for pudding, darling. She she says the iconic line, I was a lesbian for a while, you know, but it was too wet for me in the end. Men are so lovely and dry. <laughs> Incredible Top scenes. But yeah, this is like such an interesting scene because in we, go, we go almost straight into the I am a vampire scene with Venetia, where essentially he sees her outside his window, goes down. She's clearly there, kind of like maybe hoping that he'll, you know, come down and see her mm -hmm. and goes to be like, baby, it's time for some fun. My face, your pussy. And she's like, it's kind of wrong time of the month for that. And he's like, I am a vampire and just goes to town, mm -hmm. commits to the bit, mm -hmm. love that for him. And then the next day at breakfast, this is another one of those, like they're sort of like having a little like, mm, they know what happened last night. He pushes a croissant towards her during breakfast. And this was another one of those scenes where I was like, this has two completely different meanings in such an interesting way because he knows she has an eating disorder mm. there is the question of is this a moment of i have shown a connection with you i care about you this is me being like you can have more than that for breakfast like you can have more than fruit like while we're having this conversation eat it while you're distracted or is he doing it because he's essentially encouraging her to purge mm -hmm. he's giving her this thing knowing that she's going to immediately go and throw it up which she does you see her leave the table and like rush off into the house while everyone is talking about the fact that they're like 
deciding to throw a birthday party for him. So there's just so many little like psychological mind games that he plays with this family in such an interesting way, using every piece of intel that he gathers from this gossipy little family unit. It's amazing. We see a little bit later on that Felix is annoyed at Ollie because of Vampire Gate. It's just not good form to make out with my sister. And we find out that Farley saw them doing the dirty and Ollie is able to cast doubt on the validity, on the authenticity of Farley's story about them. And Ollie's able to kind of like redress this as like, oh yeah, she like came on to me and I was just trying to be kind of like polite and nice to her and Felix buys it. And this is essentially like very rapidly Oliver realizing what Farley has done is like, bish bash bosh, I'm going to get Farley out of here. Essentially... Farley and Oliver have this moment at, there's like a little pre-party to his birthday party where the dad invites some of his friends around and they have this extremely awkward karaoke song moment where Farley sets Oliver up with a song about someone giving love in exchange for money. I love you. You pay my rent. Mm -hmm. Oliver then calls Farley up and is like, oh, this is your song too, Farley. And Farley just starts singing it, performing it with gusto. Mm -hmm. That night, Oliver comes into Farley's room and essentially initiates a handjob where there is very much not enthusiastic, unambiguous consent given. Yeah, weren't the vibes that Oliver was going for, let's be fair. Yeah, no, that's kind of not his thing. And then by (laughs) the next morning, Farley is being evicted from the house because James has received a report from Sotheby's that Farley has like messaged them to be like, hey, I want to sell some valuables from James's collection Mm -hmm. for cash. So it's this idea of like, oh, he's stealing from us to try and sell, you know, the greed of this boy. He doesn't appreciate what we've given him. And this is... Okay, Farley's out. This little thorn in Oliver's side is gone. And I think we all know who was responsible. Mm -hmm. At this point is when we get what I consider to be the most awful and difficult to watch scene in this entire movie. Uh, Oh, I think I actually agree with you. Yeah, Mum and dad. Yeah, which is I have subtitled this small section. Oh God, oh God, oh God, they're going to Prescott. Um, (laughs) Where Felix... Being a nice boy, wants to try and help Oliver, has seen, you know, Oliver's phone. He's got some missed calls from his mum. So he has taken Oliver's mum's number, called her and arranged for them to what he thinks like reconcile. They're driving into the suburbs and Felix is trying to reassure Oliver by being like, this is so lovely. She's really turned her life around. I really think this is going to be good Mm -hmm. for both of you. I don't think she's using it at all. No, I don't think she's using it at all. This is amazing because it turns out that Oliver has lied about everything. Oliver's parents are both alive. They are very comfortably middle class. Yeah, they've got a sprinkler on the front lawn. Neither of them are substance users at all, let alone having any addictions. And it also turns out when they get in that Oliver has been lying about everything that's been happening to them as well. So they think that he's a top scholar at Oxford, that he's on the rowing team. And this conversation, this reveal is happening with Felix and Oliver and Oliver's parents in this room where Oliver does not have power anymore. He can't manipulate the situation. Felix will not let them leave. In fact, like Oliver tries to be like, I've got a headache, we need to go. And Felix is like, oh no, we'd love to stay. This kind of keeping up appearances element. Mm -hmm. It's the most painful. Like I had to keep pausing it because it was so painful to watch this secondhand embarrassment, humiliation, crumbling of a plan around him moment. And just the idea of someone lying about all of this stuff. It's just, oh God, it's so cringeworthy. Mm -hmm. We obviously then see when they leave, Felix absolutely losing his mind. Like you are crazy. Like you, why would you even lie about this? 
you need to leave Saltburn. It's too late to cancel the party, but as soon as the party is done, you need to go. And Oliver, sad boy, cries in the bathroom about this, how he thought that was going to go by the end of it, how he thought he was going to claw that back, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But then he does a classic, cry, 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 look up into the mirror, making a decision. And then it cuts to the party. And now, act three. Act three, the party and its aftermath. I don't think there's ever been a more perfect party and its aftermath in a movie that we have reviewed this is so distinctive and where the wheels the wheels really come off this movie it goes kind of it goes from about Mm -hmm. 40 to 100 incredibly incredibly quickly so this is a cool party it's midsummer night dream themed classic oliver is wearing a cute little suit with antlers that everybody's gonna wear Mm -hmm. for next halloween hundreds of people are here none of whom know who oliver is but are here for a really good time oliver keeps on trying to go and find felix and be like can we hang out can we be friends can we do a line of coke together and felix is like i try to be nice but can you fuck off and bother somebody else which I might borrow the delivery of that. I did quite enjoy that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just feels justified. Yeah, it does. Oliver then goes and kind of like sulks a little bit. And then Farley is there. Oliver is surprised that Farley is here. It's like, because you've been chucked out. They're going to be really angry if they find you here. And Farley is like, of course not. They invited me. This for you is just like a fun anecdote that you are going to tell your fat little kids one over Christmas. And this is like a fun little jaunt for you. This is my life. This is where I live. You are a visitor here. Know your place, essentially. And that does not put Oliver in the best of sorts. We then have the happy birthday, dear. Oh, shit. I forgot his name. Oh, I don't know what his name is. Awful scene. Awful, awful scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Oliver's kind of like trudging around his own party, being miserable, and then follows Felix and some girl into the maze, sees them fucking in a minotaur, in a minotaur? Next to the minotaur, um, in the centre of the maze, and interrupts the sexy time, being like, I need to talk to you. He ruins the, the vibes. Felix and the girl <laughs> stop fucking. How nice of them. The girl leaves and then Oliver thrusts the champagne bottle into his hands that Felix then takes a swig of. I wonder why they zoom into that. Mm, could it be significant? Yeah, but basically Oliver's like, I please forgive me, I love you. And Felix is like, dude, get help. <laughs> Don't know what to tell you. Many, many people have made discussion of the Minotaur and the maze, the Minotaur statue was actually modelled after the actor who plays Oliver's body. Almost like he himself is the Minotaur metaphor within this. Uh. There's also a lot that could probably be said about the choice of costumes for each of the characters um, within the Midsummer Night's Dream. Oh, go on, hit me with it. Go for it. Well, okay, so Farley's bottom right Mm -hmm. like he's in the donkey's head and i think that that's interesting because bottom is one of the mechanicals so he's one of the lower class characters within miss summer night's dream but he is elevated by this spell which is put on titania the queen of the fairies to fall in love with him and i do think that there is this energy of a character who is mobile between classes in a weird way but not necessarily because of anything natural that there is something which is like an outlier and i think that that is entirely farley that he has because of his race because of his like americanness there's like all of these things where he doesn't quite fit in Mm -hmm. but he has a real desire to fit in and he clearly feels a sense of 
belonging, which he talks at the party to Oliver about. But we know from a previous scene where he was talking to Felix that he doesn't necessarily feel that way entirely and that that is a bit of bravado that he's putting on in front of Oliver. Mm. For example, that could be a thing you could say about one of the costumes. So (laughs) there's lots of stuff like this, like lots of references that I feel like on a third viewing, I could go through and be looking at art history. Mm -hmm. But we're here to look at the gay. Speaking of the next day, the party's over. Felix is found dead in the maze. It's the aftermath. It's the aftermath. Oh my, me being half Northern means the word aftermath comes out of my mouth as aftermath. 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 It's like honestly a grab bag at this point. But essentially, yeah, we see Felix's death and we also see the the response of the family being a heightened version of this ignoring Mm -hmm. the crisis that is happening that we've seen all the way through the movie even as they are all breaking down in different ways they order the butler to close the curtains so they don't have to see the body go past Mm -hmm. there is this horrific moment where the butler comes in and is like the emergency services can't get to the body because they can't find their way through the maze Mm -hmm. as they're all just sat down to breakfast as if nothing has happened and it's at this point that oliver implies farley's drug use and bringing drugs to the party is what killed Felix. That He is the one who supplied the drugs that ended up in the drink that Felix drank and overdosed. And in that moment of like absolute tension, like drawn like a string, it could snap at any moment. Felix's dad essentially forbids Farley from coming back ever, cuts him off entirely. Like this is, he's never, ever, ever coming back. Mm -hmm. And then at the funeral, which Oliver comes to. Oh, but oh, does he come to it? (laughs) He comes to it. We have a very interesting element of like, He's allowed at the funeral, but then they say to him, we'll see you back at the house Mm -hmm. because they are going to go and throw Felix's rock into the river. And Oliver is not quite yet at a place where he's allowed to come to that ceremony. Mm -hmm. So instead he's like, I guess I'll fuck Felix's grave, which I think is a completely reasonable response to not going with the family to the river. That boy needs a tetanus shot after that. Like, I'm really worried about the venereal diseases he's going to be getting from the bathtub and from this fucking dirt. So he fucks them and then he fucks them. (laughs) Well, he does fuck them. He has sex with a grave and then back at the house, he runs into Venetia, the sister in the bath. And Venetia has kind of had this realization that, oh, You're there crying, having this whole like emotional thing. You knew Felix for six months. Why are you here? Dad calls you a spider because you're skulking around. I will say I don't think he calls him Spider-Man. I don't think Spider-Man ever skulked. That is not a word. He swings. But you know, that's fine. It's 2006. Maybe it's not really part of the zeitgeist yet. And she's like, you're not a spider. You're a moth attracted to shiny things and flapping your wings against the window harmlessly and she like taps his face big mistake baby you should not have played your hand like that because the next day she's also dead blood everywhere in the bath it's gruesome Mm -hmm. yeah essentially the implication being that she's been overwhelmed with grief she couldn't deal with it and she's killed herself and at this point we have finally oliver leaving Saltburn. Mm-hmm. Felix and Venetia's father essentially becoming extremely uncomfortable with Oliver being there and specifically Elspeth getting closer to him essentially bribes him to leave and Oliver's like, okay, and <laughs> yes, sir. And then skedaddles. How much would you have asked for? Well, I mean... Do you think a million is too much? No. Okay, okay. I just want to know... They got for, so much money. I just want to know for when I'm in this inevitable scenario i want to know how much to ask for because i'm like do i ask for 50k or do i ask for 2 million 
Like I don't no, know. No, you gotta you gotta go high and then you can negotiate lower, but you really gotta shoot for the stars, you know, that kind of energy. Mm-hmm. And this is where we get to the classic end of the thriller reveal moment. Mm-hmm. Because we flash forward to two thousand and two where Oliver is now older, wiser, who can tell? Mm-hmm. But reads about the fact that Felix's father, Sir James, has died. It's in a newspaper, it's been announced as very renowned rich people have done at their deaths. And he has a real crazy chance encounter with Elspeth mm-hmm, mm-hmm. at a cafe. Like, oh my goodness, you're so grown up. Of course you are. It's been so long. Ha ha. She's delighted. And she insists that he return to Saltburn, which obviously he does. And after spending some months together, she mysteriously falls fatally ill. And on her deathbed, he is like, okay, well, the big reveal time. Uh, you may be wondering why I've brought you all here to this room. <laughs> and by all of you, I mean just you and me because everyone else is fucking dead because I killed them. Oh, yes, that is the reveal. I killed all of them. So essentially, we find out that not only was this something that was happening at Saltburn, but that this has been something he's been orchestrating from the very beginning. So his first meeting with Felix at Oxford happened because he punctured mm-hmm. his bike tire. So he knew that Felix's bike was going to run out run out, run out of air. <laughs> he was going to get a puncture. Get a puncture, that's the one. Because he did it. He murdered Felix by poisoning his drink at the party. He put razor blades near Venetia's bath. He fabricated the email to Sotheby's, which got Farley thrown out initially. He planned his encounter with Elspeth in the cafe, obviously. And she also then had put him in her will, including him becoming the owner of Saltburn itself. And then he does the most extra killing of someone by removing her ventilator, Mm. which is not just like, you know, one of those little tiny things that just rest in the nose. She has fully been intubated. So he like pulls it out from her guts. Like this thing comes all the way out in a big flourish. Mm -hmm. This whole narration thing has just been to her, which is also very fun because it's like, can you imagine just like this woman on her deathbed and this guy's going, did I love your son? I mean, yeah, I wasn't in love with him though. I'm not gay, but I did kill him. And you're like, what? where is this going, sir? And also, why did no one question the fact that her ventilator had been ripped out from her guts? But listen, we don't we don't need to worry it's about it. It's okay, that. we'll allow And it. then we get the classic ending scene. And it's Murder on the Dance Floor. Murder on the Dance Floor, amazing song. He has the fortune, he has salt burn. He just gets naked and just dances around that mansion, baby. I do that. And that is his real penis, apparently. That's um, also another fun piece of trivia for you. And everyone who I never likes thought that it couldn't be a penis. is impressed by it, apparently. Oh, no, it's a lovely penis. Sometimes they do like fake ones that they just put over it so that you don't technically expose your actual penis that's ridiculous that's stupid <laughs> i guess if you if you're embarrassed by and it and then he just dances around. yeah floppy floppy flop flop yeah he's not he's not though everyone everyone thinks it looks great on the internet apparently i'm not a connoisseur but the the people have spoken and they say well done yeah, no, no, no it's a lovely flaccid penis but it's not generally the a flaccid penis doesn't really do anything you know and you can be a grower or shower or you can be a shower not a grower there's lo- there's so many different this isn't a penis review podcast. Mm, uh, yeah, not if I can help it. So <laughs> that was Saltburn, um, the erotic thriller, not eat the rich, wild mm-hmm. ride of a movie that has got so many people in a fluster. All hot and bothered. So we're now going to mm-hmm. go into our rating for this movie. We use our patented six bar rainbow flag Rating system. Mm-hmm. For those of you who don't know, the six-barred rainbow flag has red, 
which symbolizes life, orange, which symbolizes healing, yellow, that symbolizes sun, green, that symbolizes nature, blue, that symbolizes harmony, and purple, that symbolizes spirit. We choose which of these colors and their meanings to assign to this movie and how many of those bars to provide. Rowan, how many and what colors are you scoring this? I really like this movie. I thought it was unhinged nonsense in the best way possible. And it, it was like unhinged nonsense that also looked great. I'm giving this bad boy a five. I love an evil, sort of maybe bisexual, queer, even if it's just queer for the plot, unhinged murderer. I am going to not give it harmony it gets all the ones but harmony because i feel like it would be tough to use the word harmony in relationship to this film you know he's living his best life it was very healing for him for him by the end to get all that money there was a lot of sun it was the summer they were naked in a field for nature and the you know what he's got that ingenuity spirit of a businessman also there's a load of dead people yeah also some spirits are just fighting around the house mm -hmm. how about you how many are you giving it and which ones uh, i don't think that this is really like i know that he drinks semen out of a bathtub but i don't think this is gay enough arguably what? you could argue he fucked the grave of his dead yeah. friend who he was in love with yeah it's a grave would you rather he fuck the corpse is that what's happening yeah here? i Where, think so what, how, Actually, what point could this have been gayer Chazza? also he wakes up in bed with farley so we assume they've had a night of passion but i we see more straight sex than we see gay sex mm. and i want that redressed so i'm still gonna give it a five <laughs> and i'm also gonna give it everything apart from harmony <laughs> makes sense thank you so much for listening everybody if you enjoy these episodes, we ask that you consider supporting us on Patreon. As a patron, you can join our queer movie club, where we do watch-alongs in our Discord each month, but that is just the bare minimum. At higher levels, you can also get our movie recommendations and a monthly newsletter with a curation of all the gay shit we find on the internet. Thank you again to Jennifer and Toby for supporting on the highest tier on Patreon, Rainbow Parents. You, along with the rest of our supporters uh, on Patreon and the Discord, help us keep this podcast going. Make sure you follow and subscribe to the podcast so that you are notified of our next episode. We have been Jazza John. Andrew and Ellis. Thank you so much, my darlings. Thank you. And Until goodbye. Next time.